Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Iceland, an island nation in the North Atlantic Ocean which tries its very best not to be lived on. Despite this, around 360,000 people call this beautiful but desolate place home. These rugged individuals have collectively formed one of the most fascinating economies in the world, an economy that is the tale of two cities. On one hand, Iceland is one of the most egalitarian countries on Earth, recently claiming the World Bank's lowest income genie figures. On the flip side, the nation has historically been over-reliant on the finance industry, aided by having the highest economic freedom levels in the world. This, combined with its small size, has meant the nation has been extremely volatile. So, how has the nation weathered this economic turbulence without turning into a failed state? What end of the economic spectrum is it on today? And what industries drive this tiny little economy? Once all of that is done, we will put Iceland on the Economics Explained National Leaderboard over on our second channel. Some countries like Monaco, Liechtenstein, San Marino and Vatican City really walk a fine line between being a truly independent nation and some economic curiosity just tagged onto a proper country on which they are entirely reliant. The thing with Iceland, though, is that economically speaking, it more closely resembles a nation like Liechtenstein than it does Norway, Sweden or Denmark, which are the nations it's most often compared to. A population of 360,000 people is tiny, and it means that Iceland only has a GDP of $24 billion. In fairness, this is about three and a half times greater than Monaco and Liechtenstein, but it's 20 times smaller than Sweden's. The only reason that Iceland isn't really thought of as a micronation by most people is that its landmass is not micro, but by almost every other metric, that's really what it is. This hopefully gives you a better understanding of the type of economy we are dealing with here. However, there is one other thing besides chonkiness that puts Iceland in the big boys club, its self-sufficiency. You see, while most nations with similar output figures are either extremely poor or extremely small principalities, Iceland is neither. A lot of this has been out of necessity, given how isolated it is from the rest of Europe. But much more of it is also capitalising on its unique supply of natural resources. We are not talking about oil, natural gas or iron ore, but rather something that can be more consistently harvested from the Earth's crust. Geothermal power. Iceland is one of the most geologically active regions in the world. When this is combined with an abundance of hydroelectric power, the country produces more electricity per capita than any other nation on Earth. What's more is that this electricity is cheap. For comparison, the average Icelandic energy bill is 30 US dollars a month, despite the requirements for heating being much higher. 
Now this, in theory, is great for the average household budget. In practice though, it doesn't really even come close to balancing out the catastrophically high cost of living the citizens have to endure. The National Cost of Living Index for Iceland is the fifth highest in the world, sitting just below Norway and above Denmark, two countries that have average salaries 50% higher than Iceland's. So saving a few dollars on the electricity bill is undoubtedly a reprieve, but households are not really the big winners here. The benefits really go to the industrial sector. Aluminium smelting is a massively energy dependent process that extracts pure aluminium from aluminium oxides by basically electrocuting them. Yeah, alright, I never said this was engineering explained. Anyway, the upshot of this is that because Iceland has such cheap electricity, massive manufacturing plants have been built to produce pure aluminium. This has been a fantastic industry for Iceland because it is endlessly renewable and simply uses up the electricity that they have in abundance anyway. Smelting infrastructure in Iceland puts it amongst the 15 largest aluminium producers in the world, despite having a population far smaller than any of its rivals, and not mining the raw materials at all themselves. In fact, the nation barely has any natural resources. It had historically mined sulphur, but today it's just far more cost effective to extract this resource from oil refineries. However, that does not mean that their mining industry is non-existent, they just don't mine what you might expect. You see, there is one other valuable resource that requires a lot of cheap electricity to mine profitably. Cryptocurrency. Iceland is home to some of the most extensive Bitcoin mining operations in the world, as businesses have invested hundreds of millions of dollars into infrastructure to take advantage of the cheap electricity in the country. This is made better by the fact that if you couldn't tell by the name, Iceland is cold almost all year round, naturally making these operations more efficient than operations in warmer environments. Again, this industry is simply taking advantage of a surplus of renewable electricity. That means it doesn't have to raise the same ethical debates as it would in other nations where Bitcoin farms are collectively estimated to produce more carbon emissions than the entire city of Las Vegas. This all works out to provide the people of Iceland with a source of income that is not relying on digging something out of the ground or offering cheap wages to global businesses. But this does not mean that the country has been entirely consistent in capitalising on its advantages. It has also developed a lot of industries that aren't quite as rock solid. In 1990, Iceland looked very different from today. For lack of a better way of putting it, the entire country was a glorified fishing village. To this day, fishing does remain a vital part of their economy. Still, the government at the time wanted to expand its horizons slightly. This meant undertaking a sweeping set of free market reforms that covered everything from opening the nation up to international trade to loosening the regulations on financial institutions. That last part was particularly important. Over the following years, the nation saw a massive sustained increase in output, aided primarily by their expanding financial sector. Icelandic banks were attracting investment from all over the world and using that money to make significant investments in nations all across the rest of Europe. This might sound like a really good thing, Small global financial centres like Singapore have traditionally been able to leverage their role as financial intermediaries to grow healthy and prosperous local economies. This is what Iceland was theoretically hoping for, but some small differences caused some big issues. For starters, places like Singapore, Hong Kong and even the City of London work more to facilitate international banking rather than owning international banking. They are also much larger economies. 
This meant that the financial industry operating inside of Iceland became far larger than the economy of Iceland itself. By mid-2008, the three largest banks in the nation had assets under management more than 11 times Iceland's annual GDP. This would be the equivalent of JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America and Wells Fargo being 33 times larger than they already are in America today. On the other side of the banking book, those same institutions had debts eight times the national GDP. And again, by itself, this doesn't sound too bad. By being a good financial middleman, Icelandic banks had created net assets three times the annual national output of the country. But this type of extreme over-financialization inevitably caused problems. The first big one was inflation. Huge banks want to write lots of loans, which made getting credit in Iceland exceedingly easy. This specifically caused issues in real estate as the Icelandic banks followed the American model of producing mortgage-backed securities. All of this money flowing freely around the economy naturally makes that money less valuable, causing higher prices, which it did. However, this inflationary pressure did not carry over to foreign exchange markets as a drop in value. The demand for Icelandic krona needed to participate in the fastest growing financial industry in the world maintained the value of the currency. The currency almost doubled in value between 2003 and 2008 compared to the US dollar. This was despite the total supply of Icelandic krona increasing by over 300% in the same period. Icelandic krona had become the most overvalued currency in the world because it was no longer really a currency as much as it was poker chips that investors needed to get into the Icelandic financial industry. This massive currency appreciation caused issues for its more traditional industries though. Fisheries that had supported the nation for decades were no longer competitive on the international market because after currency conversion it was far too expensive to purchase Icelandic fish and crabs. The nation's central bank did try to combat this internal inflation and cool down the whole financial industry by raising interest rates to as high as 15.5%. This was all but useless though, given the central bank only controlled a tiny fraction of the money that these much larger commercial banks did. By 2008, Iceland was a financial industry with a small little nation attached to it, more so than it was a nation with a large financial industry. Now again, this by itself could have been okay, Sure, it would squash local industries and make living in the country even more expensive than it already was, but the banks had generated massive piles of assets for the country. Billions of dollars worth of stable mortgage-backed securities sat on the books of these banks, and that could never go wrong, right? Well, of course, it did. Which means that the bank's assets that were once worth 11 times Iceland's GDP were now worth pretty much nothing. It also meant that the liabilities that were worth 8 times Iceland's GDP were being called in en masse to shore up other financial centres around the world. This completely devastated the local market. Relative to the size of its economy, Iceland's systematic banking collapse was the largest experienced by any country in economic history. This whole situation also coincided with an application to become a full member of the European Union, which was subsequently put on an indefinite hold given the nation's financial instability. Now for most nations, this would have been game over, at least for the next few decades. However, Iceland's economy has since made a remarkable full recovery. This almost miraculous comeback was down to two significant factors. 
The first was a piece of policy by the government to set things right in the financial industry. What they did was divide the banks between their local operations and their much larger foreign operations, letting the foreign operations fall into receivership. The small domestic operations were bought up by the government and given aid to ensure that the country's financial operations could continue. This stabilised everything just enough that the second factor could properly be taken advantage of, which was the explosion in tourism. In 2014, Iceland welcomed over 4.4 million foreign tourists who were attracted to its beautiful landscapes, world-famous geothermal pools and questionable cuisine. That means the nation hosts more than 10 times its population in tourists in any given year. Tourism has become both the nation's largest export and most important industry. Over half of the new jobs created in the nation since 2011 were thanks to tourism, which has been great, but it has also made it one of the most tourist-dependent nations in the world, according to the World Economic Forum. Now, tourist dollars, just like mortgage-backed securities that came 10 years before, are surely solid as a rock, right? Well, of course, no. The fallout of the coronavirus has dropped Icelandic tourism from millions of visitors a year to none. This means, just like the financial crisis of 2008, Iceland has once again been one of the hardest hit economies by this most recent disaster. Fortunately, the nation has learnt its lesson, and while the next few years will be hard on Iceland, it won't be teetering on the edge of bankruptcy thanks to its continued investment in the industries we explored earlier. What's more is that while the dream of being a freezing cold European Singapore is long gone, tourists will return. Because I mean, just look at this place. It's absolutely beautiful. 